Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And this week, of course, we're welcoming Deb Dana, who is the author of Polyvagal Theory in Therapy and also Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection. And Deb is essentially bringing the um, very sort of scientifically grounded theory, um, polyvagal theory, into um, application, which is described as as um, application and therapy in both of these books. But in fact, all of the stuff she's talking about are things that people could um, engage with and, and learn how to um, sort of get the best out of your nervous system or your life, your relationships and so on uh, through these applications of this profound theory. Uh, so I'm going to, in a minute, give uh, a bit a bit more of an introduction. I know we've touched on it in in um, last week's podcast and in previous podcasts, but I'm going to give a sort of overview of the polyvagal theory. Uh, but also I'll make brief reference to the other two guests on our podcast this week. So um, you've actually got three Irvings for the price of one. So you've got my daughter, Ella, who contributes to some, some quite interesting um, sort of applied work that Deb does with us in the podcast and also some accidental object lessons about listening to your nervous system, which Deb draws out. It's quite funny. Um, and then Alice Serving, my younger sister, who um, actually pointed me to the polyvagal theory in the first place a few years back. Alice does um, sort of coaching. She does relationship work and also work around listening in, in the family context. So, yeah, three Irvings for the price of one and um, a conversation with Deb Dana, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to shortly. So here's that introduction to the polyvagal theory. So polyvagal theory is essentially a description of how our neurophysiology works. Um, I hope it doesn't sound too brain scrambling, but obviously, you know, you have nerves, you have a nervous system, and that is part of the overall physiology, how the different bits of your body work together in various processes to, to keep you alive and functioning. So neurophysiological states are basically what we experience when we're talking about a state of mind or a kind of mood state, something like that. And polyvagal theory basically points to three different neurophysiological systems, and they all have something to do with safety and um, and the opposite of safety, danger and threat. So the first system is what's called the dorsal vagal system, and that relates to um, extreme life threat. And it's a system that, that evolved with lizards um, a very long time ago, and what you'll see uh, when, when a lizard is is in extreme danger, it'll just act like it's dead. And in fact, it's it's not play acting; its body has shut down. Animals that are hibernating, uh, people who faint, and in fact, people who defecate or or are even sick through extreme fear, or, or just become frozen and can't move. Sort of. Uh, so it's it's uh, manifestation is basically immobilization. That might be total, as in in extreme cases, a catatonic state, or it may be when you're just completely stuck. So the thing to realize is although it evolves and its main um, example is extreme life threat, actually when we find ourselves unable to um, respond or deal with a situation, then we will get into this uh, immobilized state, otherwise known, it's also known as shutdown. So basically, um, when you're completely lost for words and can't express yourself in a social situation or some other situation you're finding challenging, that's immobilization. When you when you when you find that your your body um, is like walking through treacle or glue or something, 
that's immobilization. That's the dorsal vagal state. When you're feeling um, just like you want to give up, you can't cope uh, and, and things like that. So obviously, in other words, depression would be a manifestation of this system. The next one is a slightly more modern in evolutionary terms, a slightly more modern system, and it's the fight or flight system. And that's uh, also known as the, the mobilization system. So this is what happens when you know that you have to take action. And, and it's, again, uh, primarily a response to threat. So you're afraid um, or you'll see danger. You see cues of threat or danger. And at that point, you either become aggressive, which is the fight part, or you become fearful or anxious, which is the uh, flight part. But basically, adrenaline will, will uh, stimulate your heart and your breathing and um, all your blood will go to the, the extremities of your body, to the muscles, to so that you are able to act. act. So that's, uh, in other words, you are mobilized. So dorsal vagal's immobilized, fight or flight, or, or the uh, sympathetic response is mobilized. Now, the third one is what this is really all about in terms of there being a, a holy grail or a desired state, a desired place to be. And it's the ventral vagal system or the social engagement system. But this is a situation where basically we, we are able to connect because we feel safe. So two things need to happen to be in that state. The first is you're not having any of these cues of threat or danger happening. But that's not enough in itself. You also need positive cues of safety. And polyvagal theory outlines how um, our body language and particularly uh, our facial expression and the uh, the nonverbal cues of our manner of speaking. So it's not the words you're saying, but how you're saying them. And in a sort of sing-song lilt or vocal prosody, uh, that's seen to be reassuring and a cue of safety, which we're actually evolved to pick up on and feel safe if people are singing, uh, speaking in that kind of sing-song voice. Uh, whereas a monotone voice is is actually a cue of threat. Um, or danger, uh, and, and also lower voices. So the men really have to work, especially if they have deep voices, on not being threatening uh, because the, 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 those bass notes are actually associated with uh, the sound of a predator, just as high screeching noises are also cues of, um, of other kinds of danger. So this middle range vocal prosody thing is a cue of safety. Uh, smiling is a cue of safety. The little crinkles by the side of your eyes are laughter lines when, when you're... Um, genuinely engaging with someone you can't help but have those little crinkles and quite unconsciously you pick up on that uh, as a cue of safety and that brings me on to something else uh, which is neuroception it's a very important concept but basically neuroception is an unconscious form of perception whereby you are picking up cues of safety or threat and danger from your surroundings in particular from other people and from your own body so you're, you're sort of checking in with your body to see whether your body itself is picking up on any any uh, cues of danger. Now, the trouble is when people, um, and this is kind of all of us, uh, have suffered trauma in, in the course of our life, to a greater or lesser extent, you get this kind of scrambled neurosystem, uh, neuroception, which is basically that your body is, is perceiving threat or perhaps perceiving slights from other people or insults or rejection or something like that. When in actual fact, um, not, no such intention is there in, or no such danger is there, but our body is misreading cues. So that's basically called faulty neuroception. And one of the goals of therapy uh, in, in this polyvagal lens is to reprogram your nervous system so that you can pick up on cues of safety which are there and not falsely uh, assign uh, 
cues of danger to, to an environment where they're actually not there. And that's very important because the most important part of the theory, um, as I said, is the um, social engagement system. That's the ventral vagal system uh, as opposed to the dorsal vagal. So polyvagal is, is, is so-called because um, you have both ventral and dorsal vagal. The dorsal is the shutdown immobilization bit. And this ventral vagal is the social engagement system. So being able to read cues of safety means that you can enter into um, a space described as co-regulation. So people smiling and speaking in a, in a, in a sing-song voice and otherwise giving cues to, to uh, the other person's neuroception that they are safe to be with enables um, bonding to happen or the forming of uh, emotional bonds. Um, and it means basically that you're safe to approach. So neuroception evolved because uh, it's important to know whether another animal is safe to approach or not. Uh, in in um, So it evolved in tandem with this, this uh, capacity to co-regulate. So we just have this amazingly sophisticated ability to to soothe and reassure one another and to gather one another in so that we can become close and then we can share this safe space in which it's important to emphasize uh, your um, nervous system is optimal functioning. So you can now um, think more clearly. Um, you can feel good. Your um, immune system works better. It's, it's, this is a sort of seat of creativity the um the social engagement system uh so that's that's a bit of a brief perhaps not so brief um summary of the polyvagal theory uh obviously the interest in terms of this podcast is in the um ability of um, our nervous systems to connect and the polyvagal theory is primarily um oriented around the connection with other people um but what, what's, what's being described is the neurophysiological um, apparatus that we have for connection per se. So um, that's obviously highly relevant. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a few things that are touched on in this conversation about where um, all of us feel safe and, and in that ventral vagal state. And it's not always whilst having a beer with your mates or a cuddle with your girlfriend or, or, or your kids or something. There are references to other things basically giving rise to that ventral vagal state. And in fact, I mentioned um, in, in terms of an activity that makes me uh, feel socially engaged or in that connected ventral vagal state, um, that of cooking a meal. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing to look at how different activities are actually bonding us to our surroundings. Obviously, when, when uh, the, 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 the um, the theme that runs through more podcasts than not for World Wild is foraging itself, the gathering of wild plants. And when we when we gather the plants, that's um, uh, an activity that can definitely bring us into that ventral vagal thing. Especially when you know a place, you're familiar with the plant, and uh, you've just learned to enter into that space. I must say, because I've had um, days when I'm rushing around trying to gather stuff for restaurant orders. Um, there's times when I've missed that completely, which is a bit a bit sort of tragic. But these days, um, especially having done yoga and a, and a lot more of this stuff around polyvagal theory, I'm realizing that just the simple act of gathering nettles or something like that is better than yoga. You know, it's better than any mindfulness practice because these are activities which uh, we're evolved to do, and and so find ourselves, you know, touching touching the plants and being present 
in these kind of spaces in an activity that that's just as ancient as ancient can be. Uh, it's it's very very settling and grounding, and you do feel that that you are connecting to um, to places and plants. And obviously, taking it home and and uh, and cooking, I've I've um, gradually been it's, well, it's gradually been dawning on me that we'd build up relationships with ingredients, most of which are coming from living things um, one way or another. Um, and so a relationship with a plant that we cook with often. I'm experimenting a lot with hogweed, for example, at the moment and, and finding that my relationship is deepening with that particular plant. And so it made me think about uh, a previous podcast episode where we talked about mental health and the kitchen and the, and the restaurant industry. And just uh, talking this, this um, episode through with Joel earlier on today, we really hit on a an important point, uh, which is another aspect of the polyvagal theory, that um, one of the things that is triggering threat in terms of our social structures these days is that of evaluative judgments. So there are quite a lot of contexts uh, in which the, the overall culture and, and sort of atmosphere of, of the place or the industry or the, uh, I don't know, the institution, um, is one of evaluative judgment, and that makes us feel uh, that we're under threat. It basically puts us into a mobilized state, and everything we're doing is trying to come up to the mark so that we don't get, I don't know, um, put down the pecking order, you might say, or, or you know, not seen suitable for promotion, or you won't get that grant funding, or, or you won't build up your reputation so you get the next better job. Um, so that's not at all uh, conducive to the um, social engagement system. It's not giving you a cure of safety. Uh, Stephen Porges talks about that within the academic context, that it's, that it's uh, very much a context of um, evaluative judgment and therefore not, not a very nice place to work unless you can find a way through that. But obviously, the uh, the cooking, the, the restaurant industry is, is one that is intensely evaluative, um, I mean, I just think about all all of the uh, the TV programs that have been out and and just stayed for years in in the UK at least. Uh, things like Master Chef and the Great British Menu, and it, it's quite clear that that um, chefs are under a lot of pressure to basically show their um, their skill set and and to achieve. Uh, in this very evaluative judgment kind of context. I mean, it'd be interesting to have a chef on and and uh, explore that in more detail. But I guess my train of thought was, here's this activity um, and here's this, this industry uh, with, with, you know, thousands of people that have developed this amazing skill set around this fundamentally bonding exercise of, of food, you know, in the way that I'm describing it here. You know, when you have a relationship with an ingredient, you're there with your hands, you're there with your... Your, your memories and all of your senses, engaging with that ingredient to create dishes. And, of course, there's, there's all the relationships regarding the provenance of those ingredients as well to do with land, ecosystem, producers, other people, and so on. And, um, of course, the, the, the act of sitting down and gathering to eat for food is, is, an, is a profoundly social thing. And one important point to make is that you, you, you can't digest food very well if you're feeling edgy and in fight or flight. So the whole conviviality of food where people... Uh, sit down and feel relaxed and are bonding and have the cues of safety means that the, your body can actually digest the food really well. So it just seems um, so important that the um, the whole sphere of, of restaurants and people producing food and serving food and creating an environment to uh, to eat food should um, 
get past that overarching uh, atmosphere, context, um, culture of, of evaluative judgment and, and move into, into something where um, this, this bondedness, which is inherent to food, um, should, should come through. So that's, that's a thought that I've ended up on, which, which perhaps uh, grounds this particular episode a bit more in some of the ongoing themes. But hopefully um, everyone listening has, has, has caught the, the earlier episodes um, where I've expounded a, a little bit more about why, why I'm going down all this sort of neurophysiological route at the moment. But in case you've missed that, it's just basically that, that uh, this, uh, as I've already mentioned briefly, this uh, idea of connectedness and bonding, which is elaborated on so profoundly and in such detail and practical application by the polyvagal theory, is really relevant to our relationship to landscape, ecology, and other species. Uh, so, you know, if we can if we can understand this, then we're in a position to um, apply it to the overarching theme of the podcast, the the uh, the theme of finding our way back home to landscapes, to to find this active participation, this relational participation in, in landscapes, and also to find our way home into the communities. Uh, in in ways that express the wildness of our uh, nervous systems and not the kind of traps and spheres of control that are uh, characteristic of modern life. And then lastly, to find our way home into our own bodies and see that that safe space, that held space um, in, in the wild neurophysiology of our own bodies. Okay, so after that fairly long introduction, we'll now get on to this week's conversation with Deb Dana. I was just saying, Alice and I, just by coincidence, we're both uh, working our way through your um, polyvagal theory and therapy book. Oh, nice. Um, nice. So that's kind of partly why uh, I thought it'd be great to, for both of us to be chatting. Um, Alice actually introduced me to all this stuff some years back, got me connecting with the kind of somatic therapy stuff. Part of my background is I read psychology at university, but the whole the whole kind of structure of how it was very much a medical model in the in the department that I studied in and um, yeah. no mention of the kind of things that we're going to be talking about today at that point even even the idea of um, therapy was very much sort of talking cures um, yeah. and very rigid and formal and I, I, I couldn't see a place in that for me I was very interested mm-hmm. in why do people suffer from mental health difficulties my I had, dad had a diagnosis of bipolar and was on lithium for I think the last 15 or 20 years of his life and mm-hmm. so I guess you know we 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 grew up being aware of these issues I went I went to university to study psychology to get some kind of answers um the closest I got to an answer was probably uh it was a work by a guy called Peter Hobson who'd written a book on autism and he mm-hmm. made this statement that the fundamental thing about being human is, is relatedness. Mm. Now it's amazing to me that I read psychology for three years and this was just peripheral reading. I just stumbled across that. It wasn't, it wasn't um, on our reading list at all. I just happened to find it. And this statement, yeah. the basic aspect of being human is, is, is relatedness. Now of course mm-hmm. you go on to realize that that's the basic aspect of being alive. And if, if you're any kind of organism, but that just, opened a door for me to, to start thinking. And he talked a lot about responsiveness and early childhood development and so on. So that was, that was my first sort of 
sense that there was something within an academic discipline, loosely known as psychology, that would make some sense to what actually was going on in, in actual people's lives such as my own. But yeah. So years later to find out that, that you guys have been working on this incredibly rich stuff around um, polyvagal theory and wow, it's a whole other world that we didn't dare dream existed quite honestly. So I'm glad. I'm glad you've become part of the polyvagal community. That's lovely. Yeah. Did you want to say something, Alice, by way of by way of arrival, you mean? <laughs> oh, yeah, by way of um, here I am and this is me, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I received a phone call at nine o'clock this morning, Deb. Um, I'm halfway through your book on Audible, um, and uh, I, I had a phone call from Miles, who's my older brother, saying, do you, do you fancy coming and interviewing Deb Dana with me today? <laughs> and I... I thought it, it. it's quite unusual to have an invitation to meet the author of the book you happen to, and it was unrelated to Miles's podcast schedule. So it's, it's, it's really delightful. I, uh, my interest in this is, is similar to Miles's on a personal level because, because of coming from a, um, a family of people who struggle, essentially, and, and wanting to get some perspective on that and really looking for tools to navigate life in a, in a more manageable way as an adult. And that, in, in turn, as it often does, has led me to look for work in that area. So I work mm. as a coach and, and I'm also interested in parenting. And I also do relationship work. So um, really all about safety. And um, I loved what you said about right at the beginning of um, polyvagal theory and therapy, you lay out the role of neuroception. And that state precedes story. And that's one of the key things that I found so useful in working in, in, relation, in the relational field is that we get so caught up in the story. This child is bad or this, um, my partner is, is wrong. And actually what's happening is, is a, a, a neuroceptive response. Um, I wonder if you want to talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. We've told our story just a little bit. Why don't you tell your story? Even even though I'm sure it's 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 um we, we could spend the whole time telling that because I've been on the main. Um, but just as, as as much or as little as you you, you fancy sharing really about how you ended up mm -hmm, sure yeah. engaging with polyvagal theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, my my story of becoming a passionate polyvagalist, which is like I like to to say, and um part of this worldwide community of polyvagal informed people, which Steve and I are, are hoping to keep building. You know, you talk about a global community of people in your network. We're looking to really, you know, have people around the world understand, befriend their nervous systems, and then um, be able to use that um, connection to then connect differently as they move through the world. Um, I was first introduced to polyvagal theory when I read Steve's first book. So that was around 2011 when his book came out. And I'd always been, a, I'm a, a licensed clinical social worker. So as a therapist, I've always been interested in the way brains work, because I think that's what we're, we're helping our clients work with. They're working with their brain systems. And when I found um, Steve's work, it was more on the lines of this, you know, Dan Siegel's embodied brain experience that oh here's this whole nervous system that really is informing the brain 
Um, and for me, it was, you know, that moment, that aha moment that we sometimes have when, oh, now things make sense in a new way. And I wanted to learn more. So um, I was working with a group and one of our frameworks was to bring trainings here to Maine. And so I emailed Steve and said, would you come? Would you spend a few days with us and do a training so that we could understand polyvagal um, in a more deep way? And he came and that was the beginning of sort of a, a collaboration and now a, a deep friendship. And, you know, because he's a, he's a brilliant scientist and, and really without his development of polyvagal theory, none of this would would happen. Um, and I then, you know, I'm the one that, that has been lucky enough, blessed to be able to take his scientific work and turn it into, um, you know, easy to use concepts that therapists use and now taking it out into the broader world for, you know, just curious human beings, people who are working in different, different areas. And so it's become sort of the way that I see the world. I see the world through the lens of the nervous system, which, you know, in some ways makes it a much easier way to, to look at the world. You know, mm. you see somebody out there and first you, you know where your nervous system is. Are you regulated or not? And then you look at the other person and it's the same. Are they regulated or not? You know, are they feeling a, a biological state of safety or unsafety? You know, not because safety is not a cognitive experience. Right, safety is an embodied experience, and polyvagal theory gives us the the roadmap to understanding those things. So, you know, my life changed, and it's been a wonderful adventure since that moment. And now, since we've all gone online because we can't, you know, be in that relational connection except through screens, um, you know, I'm kind of figuring out. So, okay, how do I keep teaching online because mm -hmm. There's a huge interest in this around the world, and especially in this time that we're in right now, because understanding how our nervous systems are responding to um, social distance, to sheltering in place, to disconnect, and how we're going to re-enter the world in a safe way, I think is really driven by our nervous systems. And so understanding our own systems and being able to help others understand theirs, I think, is, is, a, is a call to action right now. Yeah. And, and when you when you say about the um, embodied state rather than cognitive, it's something I've only the, the penny only dropped this this week. Just listening to somebody talking about this because they pointed out that that when we're experiencing our body, we're not using words. That that was a bit of a pivotal moment for me when they made that statement. I thought, aha! So that's what's going on. I'm dropping out of this verbal thing going on in my head, mm -hmm. and now I'm just feeling my body. And um, yeah, and and you know through the polyvagal lens you're feeling when you're in that state that we we call ventral vagal which is the place in your nervous system that that brings you the capacity for regulation and safety and communication and connection that connection that we feel is is an embodied connection it's a connection to our to our, what's happening for us our, our all of the parts of us that live inside us but it's also this ability to be in connection with others and the ability to be in connection with spirit and the ability to be connected with nature and the world around us. You know, so it's your biology that supports that capacity or limits that capacity because when we leave that state of ventral, when we move into one of the two survival states, that our nervous system has, either sympathetic, which is that intensely mobilized need to take action, fight or flight, 
or the dorsal vagal immobilized, collapsed, um, give up, shut down place, mm -hmm. we no longer can be in connection to any of those domains. So our ability to connect with the world, to, to the earth, to nature, um, and, and really be nourished by that connection is taken away when our biology leaves um, ventral. So it's an important place to know how to get to and to know how to return to because we all leave it many times a day. You know, the, the goal for, for well-being is not to always be anchored in that ventral vagal place. The goal is to know when we're leaving it and how to return. I call it home. Yeah. We talk about connection. Yeah. That, I call ventral vagal Home, right that's our home and how do we return home to that place that then allows us to feel home with others and with nature and with spirit I, I mean I love the fact that you you, you are calling it home because as, as I communicated in that um, email I sent I've been working with ideas around what it means to be home and and um, you know people who listen to the podcast have heard me kind of rehearse this several times but you know, is that the home or, or a dwelling place is, is our body. It's also the interpersonal space and it's also the landscape. But, but, the, but the polyvagal stuff seems to um, create a, a, a way of understanding all of that because, mm. I mean, it's, it, one of the things that I find um, fascinating is when we talk about being in our bodies, like in that ventral um, vagus thing, where we're actually at home and at rest and at ease in our body, it's it's almost like a social space between mm -hmm. our presence mm -hmm. and the body that embodies our presence. You know, it's like we're we're kind of friends with our bodies, sort of thing. So that's that in itself is social. But the other thing I find really interesting is that because um, I'm in my body, I'm now also in your presence. Whereas when I'm not in my body, I'm not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I'm not with myself, I'm not with you. I'm not sure I'm able to quite articulate what I'm trying to say. It just seems paradoxical that the idea of connecting with me is then connecting with you. Yeah, and I think, you know, Steve once said that trauma is a chronic disruption of connectedness. Right. And I think, you know, he was talking about, you know, nervous system to nervous system. And I think we could also expand that to think when we feel disconnected from the world around us, from environment, from, from feeling at home um, in ourselves or in the world, we, it's a traumatic experience for us. And, you know, you talk about me being home here so I can connect with you and be present for you that's you know we go back to you know Alice's talk about neuroception that's really um, how our nervous system is sending cues out into the world that either I'm here and you're welcome to approach me or um, I'm in one of those survival states and don't get near me which would be the sympathetic energized fight or flight I'm sending you cues of danger or if I go into that dorsal place of, of disconnect where I'm sort of untethered from the world and untethered from my experience, then the cues I'm sending out into the world are um, ones of, you know, don't bother to try and find me. I'm sort of out here floating and I'm not really available for even the connection you might find in sympathetic. So it's neuroception that the way that the nervous system takes in these cues that starts this whole process. And your neuroception um, works inside, outside, between is the easiest way to think about it. So it's always, it's scanning inside your body all the time. 
your neuroception is listening to what's happening inside your own body. And then it's listening out into the environment. What's happening in this environment I'm in. And then it's listening between nervous systems. So those are those three domains that neuroception is, is getting cues from and is also sending cues too. And, you know, you talked about, you know, feeling at home in, in, um, in the world around us. I think when we enter an environment that gives us those cues of safety, then we enter into that space of feeling ventral and feeling that, that openness, that there's a oneness that can happen from that space. And I can feel safely grounded and anchored in, in the world around me as well as other things. And I think that's important for environments to, to find the environment that, that brings you that. Yeah. Like where, you know, where, where you feel at home um, most fully. I suppose the thing that I find most extraordinary or most um, wonderful is that our nervous system is evolved to, could you, that's a bit distracting, Tana, could you just find a way to settle, thanks. Do you want to get a different chair then? See, that's a great, that's a great example of, of neuroception, sending a cue of danger and then not being able to sit still because there's something that's not right. So now we'll try another chair. Ooh, that one looks comfortable. Hmm. See how your nervous system responds to that one. How's that, Ella? Is that better, Ella? Yeah, so, and I love that, that both you were listening to Ella's response and being curious about what might be a solution, right? That, that was systems in connection, right? That was lovely. That was a lovely example of that. Thank you. Well, it's also slightly grumpy dad thinking that's making me not able to relax. <laughs> so there's the repair, right? There's the repair. So Miles, if I could just stop there for a minute, that was beautiful because you noticed here's what's happening with my nervous system. Right. And I just said that to the world. And then I made a lovely repair with my daughter. Right. That's, that is, that is exquisite. And that's exactly the process that we want to have going on in the world. And, uh, so thank you both for just cool. showing that so beautifully. Mm -hmm. So what, what I was um, exploring there um, was just what you described before, um, that our nervous system is so exquisitely tailored in a, in a way to, to fit with the, bio, the biosphere and our biological surroundings and, and I guess, mm -hmm. you know, you could go beyond that, the sort of climate geology and all of that, as well as this incredible social engagement capacity that we have for, for one another, because we have two nervous systems that are the same, but just because they're the same, you know, these cups don't necessarily fit particularly well because they're the same. So the, the uh -huh. point is our nervous systems do wonderfully couple together and, and fit and, and, and dance together. But mm. this, the sense I'm exploring around environment and, and the outdoors and, mm. and everything that, Actually, um, it's not just like that I feel comfortable with my surroundings, but like I can find things to eat. I can, I can find somewhere to, to, um, to uh, create a home and so on. But, but my nervous system is, is perfectly developed to, um, you know, and I love the idea of ecologically, they talk about a niche and it's a niche is like kind of um, this, this hollow that, that you, mm. Mm -hmm. kind of work your way into and you lie so you lie down on the ground and you just work your way into that mm. it was kind of 
yielding to you like some soft earth. Mm. And it would yeah. take wolves do that brilliant. That's what they do, don't they? They fly down and do oh. that. And then and then you've got this shape in the ground and you've got you. Yeah. It's a perfect fit. Well, that's what we've done over millions of years. But the but the point for me is that what what we what we end up with, you know, Stephen says a lot about being uh, being safe. And I think there's a related sense of being comfortable you know when you're safe you're, you're, you're comfortable and that perfect fit means that mm. well, I just love it because it makes me feel like here we are in this in this biological world this physical world here we are in this social world here we are in these bodies mm-hmm. but it's all intricately um, designed by this gradual shaping mutual yeah. shaping so that it just feels so good it is so good it all works together yeah. wonderfully and 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 it all boils down to the fact that our nervous system just is a perfect fit. It's all that. I love that. I love that sense of finding your way into that, that niche and feeling safe there. And because once you, once your nervous system sends you cues of safety, then you can feel all those other things. You can feel comfortable. You can feel welcomed. You can feel joined. You can, but it starts from your nervous system sending you those cues that, Oh, okay, this is, a safe moment, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lovely, yeah, it's um, nervous is the wisdom in the nervous system is quite amazing, isn't it? Because it also, if you're, you know, walking through the world, it also sends you um, cues to be, to, to watch out, to be on guard, that to, you know, maybe this isn't so safe, to be curious, to be all of those different things. And, you know, which is why I think, again, when we come back to befriending our nervous system, to knowing how does my nervous system send me cues and how has it been shaped over my lifetime because then I can reshape it so that you know I can go out into into the environment and find places I feel safe and well that's, and that's something in that way there's there's um there's something really fun that, that um I had I had a chat yesterday and so and we were, we were talking about um we touched at different points in the conversation on on on, on habits and then habitat and I just had one of those little flashes of thinking, hang on a minute, that's, that's the same word. With, so I wrote it down just to check my brain wasn't playing tricks on me. No, that's definitely habit at. Right, that word is in that word. Good. So where can we go with that? That's fun. So, um, and then I thought immediately about your, about your book. So, you know, a habitat is obviously where we habitually dwell. And then I mentioned this to my wife later and she said, uh, of course, we also inhabit brilliant so now we've got home that that's that's great we're dwelling we're inhabiting but i just thought well there's 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 really something to do with that because um our 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 habitat is where we conduct our habits you know and and when we inhabit something this is because we do the the habitual things that we do and anyway i thought of your your book and how so many different things that you're proposing Mm -hmm. that will help Mm -hmm. to to Mm -hmm help us to know where we are and how to get somewhere else. But you do all of this, uh, or rather you suggest all these procedures, which are essentially habits. Yes. And they're little routes, they're little ways home. They're little, you know, and I just thought, well, that's like having, like, for us, we've got fields with, with badger trails going across them. And you can say, oh, that's where the badger goes. And you see this hole in the hedge, that's where the badger pushes in. So these habits oh, I love that. Are, yeah. are kind of roots. So I just... Yeah, um, that's beautiful. Yeah, because our, our nervous system sets up predictable pathways, which we might call the nervous system's habits, right? 
And what I what I want to remember and have everybody sort of think about is that your nervous system has an inherent knowing of how to come home to ventral. Right. That lives in all of us. There is this inherent knowing about how to do that. And then over the course of our life, um, some of those pathways get obscured or get, you know, um, if we think about a real path of the trees fall or the boulders come. And so it's harder to find the way home. Right. And so then we have these habits of moving into protection rather than connection. And yes, what, what my you know, book talks about is how do we, how do we remove some of those obstacles and shape ourselves so that we find the way home again more easily, right? So it doesn't take quite so much effort to come home to ventral. Yeah, because because I suppose the other the other idea that 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 I've been working around is kind of the opposite, the antithesis of of home, the idea of sort of exile, you know. But but the bizarre thing is, normally when you're in exile, you, you know, you know, physically, geographically, you're somewhere else. But the I've been trying to think of a way of describing it because what does it mean to, to, to and, and I guess dissociation is the best word we've got, but we're kind of here, but not here. You know, we're, we're here, but elsewhere, but not actually elsewhere. You're just not, yeah. it's non-presence. Like that's a kind of weird one to find your way home when you actually are here. But so, so yeah. So I think when the nervous system is um, mobilized to leave ventral because and again, the nervous system always enacts an adaptive survival response. We always put the word adaptive in front of survival response because the nervous system is, is neurocepting something unsafe in the environment and is, has made the decision that your ventral vagal capacities will not keep you safe enough. So then it takes you away from home into one of these other two places, either sympathetic mobilized fight flight or um, dorsal disconnection where yes we, we have that flavor of dissociation um, we go to dorsal when we feel trapped so if I can't escape physically escape my 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 system will take me to somewhere where I'm not really here anymore so but isn't fight or flight also in a sense dissociation because you're not you're not you know when I'm in fight or flight I guess I am feeling my body in a way but I'm not present. I mean, isn't that also the case? Well, you're you're present. You're present in a different way in sympathetic. You you're present in a mobilized. I am going to take action here, and then in dorsal, you're not present because you can't take action. You've you've left the room, so to speak. So it's a it's a it's a oh, different embodied experience. Present, am I? If 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 if, if um. If I'm in fight or flight, I, I, I can't be with you. you right. No. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Once you, you know, ventral, I've, I've taken to calling it the, the, the active ingredient in, in our um, ability to connect, right? If you, if you don't have some amount of ventral in your system, a critical mass of ventral in your system, then you can't connect because your biology has said connection is now dangerous. So yes, when you go to sympathetic, whereas in ventral, I'm loving this and we are all, you know, finding our way into friendship and connection. If I go to sympathetic, you're now, you're now my enemies. The world is an unsafe place and I have to fight to survive. So I'm either going to fight by being aggressive or fight by getting out of here, right? And then in, in dorsal, you don't exist. So I can't connect with you because the world doesn't exist and you don't exist. I'm off in my own space so it's that kind of kind of experience around um 
the ability to be present and, and connect, it's, which again is based on sorry. control. Hmm. Oh, go ahead. Uh, just, just as well as being um, you being my enemy, I, I, I find that I slip into this mode of, of, of you, you being my problem. Yep. Right. Like, yeah. For example, Ali, my other, my wife, will, will will be kind of sharing stuff with me, but unless I can respond really well, I find, oh no, Ali's worried again. What are the implications to this? I need to tell her something that's going to solve it. You know, it's a classic thing, oh. but I can see that that's coming out of my body state. You know, we had an interesting conversation this morning where I recognised that, and and yep. and, and, I, and I said, look, I realise that what I need to be saying. Is something that will respond and reassure you, but I'm feeling like this is this is a threat because you're anxious, and, and I'm not sure I can help. And if you carry on being anxious, we're, we're going to have difficulty collaborating on the tasks mm -hmm. that we've got to do. Because so it's it's kind of um, I just think that's interesting because it makes you know it makes the world the world being a problem that needs fixing is is actually a, a big part of. Um, how we approach the world, I think, you know, like in terms of scientific paradigms and so on. I go, okay, if we could just solve this, then we'll be able, to, we'll be able to make it do what we want. If we can be present with this, then we can have this amazing reciprocal thing right. that will unfold, and 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 right. we won't be in control, but we will be taken care of, kind of thing. So, right, because in sympathetic, you were talking about, I, I have to solve, that's a problem I have to solve, right? And so I, I can't collaborate. This isn't about collaboration. This is about me solving that problem. And oftentimes you're the problem, so I got to fix you in some way, right? But in ventral, our problem solving is um, bringing curiosity and we collaborate, right? Yeah. So in, in, in ventral, there's no um, one end in mind, right? In, in sympathetic, I know what needs to happen. In ventral, it's like, wow, there are lots of options here, right? So you can see the power of ventral to make the world a, a, an amazing place, a safer place than out of safety comes. There, there, I mean, I work with, with individual people and when we come to ventral, um, all of a sudden they're coming up with solutions to the problem they brought to therapy that we never would have thought of, right? But it lives inside their system and here it comes. So the same is true for, you know, solving, you know, scientific problems from a place of ventral, looking at the world and the environment and climate. I don't know what's going to happen, but from ventral, the stories are ones of possibility. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever spend any time thinking about the policy implications of polyvagal theory? You said you come from a, a social work background. It, I, it does seem like if only... If only we could put everyone into ventral vagus mode, everything would be okay. It, and, you know, mm -hmm. some people like to think, think, about, think about that all the time. And I, it, 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 is that, do, do, you, do you have any interaction with, with, with that kind of side of things? Yes, and more and more um, now that, that the world is changing and, you know, Steve mm. and I are collaborating around um, trying to bring... Um, you know, sort of structures, polyvagal informed structures to other systems, to mm. the medical world, to the legal world, to the academic world, um, because, you know, it's applicable everywhere. Everybody has a nervous system. 
and the nervous mm. system is running the show wherever we go. So could we mm. find a way to, you know, have systems, big systems, be polyvagal informed? Because once they're polyvagal informed, they're going to organize themselves differently. So it's not so much that I have to teach, teach a system how to do it. I just have to help a system become polyvagal informed, um, befriend their nervous systems, and then they're going to figure out how, oh, how do we do this differently, right? So yes, we are spending a lot of time recently trying to expand from, you know, I started with one-on-one counseling and then groups and now I teach and now online and Steve's, you know, doing the same with trying to really create this polyvagal informed community worldwide and including um, big systems in that because you know if you look at any system and say and you can you know see how polyvagal informed what i call it and the more polyvagal informed it is the the healthier it is for everybody for um the employees for the people it serves for the world around them so yeah yeah I love that you're using the word systems so much. I think, I think that's really, that's, mm. that's a really useful word. I had a question that kind of leads on from that, um, just in terms of the, what polyvagal theory actually brings as a perspective and whether you found that it, because it's so, it's so much a kind of formalization of what we intuitively know. It kind of gives you this this very easy to understand and easy and what your book book does is makes it easy to navigate mm-hmm. map for for what we live daily as you said and i'm I'm just curious whether you feel that it brings any any new insights of its own or or whether it really just works as a very useful map for what we already know yeah that, that- it's probably a both and for me because really what polyvagal theory does is bring into or, or give you a way to bring into explicit awareness um, what's going mm. on um, inside and what's going on between in relationships. And once you understand the biology of um, your connection, then you can stop being stuck in the story because the, the nervous system doesn't assign motivation, right? It, it simply acts to keep safe. And then we humans make up stories about why mm. you're doing something or why I'm doing something. So in that way, my goal is to help people understand the workings of their own nervous system so that they can become active operators of those systems. Mm. Because I think once I feel like I have some management over my system, I, I, I understand it, I can see where it's taking me, I have some ways to shape it, then I feel like a more, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm more... I don't know what the word is for me. I'm, I'm, you have more agency? Yes, I have more agency. Thank you. And, you know, for, for many of us, that sense of agency is, um, is missing. You know, for, for trauma survivors, certainly the sense of agency is missing. But even for many of us now in this current time of pandemic, this sense of agency is missing. So if I can, you know, really work with my nervous system to figure out, you know, what I, what I say is what would nourish my nervous system in this moment, I think is, mm. is the question I like to ask. Mm. And then how is it possible for me to find some way of nourishing it in that way? Because the ways I used to do, you know, three months ago are no longer available to me. If we talk about where my soul feels at home in the environment, it's by the ocean, 
right? I, I need ocean. Um, and ocean is, you know, like a five minute drive from my home here in Maine, but the roads are all closed because the, the beaches are closed at the moment because we live in a place where too many people want to come and be by the ocean. So even though it's there, I can't get there. And, and so what I would have done before to nourish my system, I can't do now, but I bring up the, I can hear the sea. So I, I go listen, or I bring up the memory of being there. So, you know, in those ways, I think when we understand our nervous system and understand what nourishes it, we can find a way to be safe and nourish our systems, even when things, even when things are restricted. So, so I, I think for me, that's that it is helping us understand what's going on inside and bringing what is implicit into explicit awareness, which then makes it available for us to, to work with. If it stays implicit, and I just have that longing for the sea but can't get there, and I don't bring it to awareness, I'm going to... I'm going to feel bad about that. I'm going to dysregulate. Something's going to happen. But if I bring it into explicit awareness, then I can work with it. And you're going to make a story about something else being wrong when actually you're feeling Exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And we see that all the time, don't we? we if you mm. listen to people's stories, it's so fascinating. You think, oh, that, what state is that story coming from? Mm. Because you can tell when it's a ventral story. You know, my ventral story is, wow, I, I, I get why I can't go to the beach right now. And what are some other ways that I can connect with the sea? It's a ventral story. Mm. My sympathetic mm. story is going to be, I'm really angry at the world for taking my beach away from me. And then my dorsal story is going to be one of despair that, wow, I'm, I, you know, beach is gone for me forever. Give it up. Right. It's been really fun uh, watching people's responses on social media to, to the, to the pandemic. And they think they're talking and telling the world about what they think about the pandemic, but actually what they're writing about is their state and their trauma patterns. And that's what, you, that's what's being laid out in great detail. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and those three stories, because those three states are always working in your nervous system, you always have access to at least three stories. Right? Mm. It depends on which one is taking up the most room in your system and which one you, you want to focus your attention on. So, That's which right. is that sense of, you know, being able to shift. I can shift out of that sympathetic story of, of you know, this is really unfair and, and, you know, everybody should just stay away from my beach. I can shift out of that story when I know mm. that, oh, I'm sympathetic and I know how to come home to ventral. So, yeah, yeah. I, I love, I love story. I'm a writer. I love words. And mm. I like listening to the autonomic story rather mm. than what the brain's mm. doing with it. I suppose, I suppose I, I just, just thought of something um, a bit contrary there. I was just thinking, you know, what if the ANC had got all ventral vagal in uh, in the time of apartheid? <laughs> I was just thinking like the power of anger and 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 the uh, the fight or flight thing that sometimes you know it's a good job people didn't so, get. So let let's let's talk about that for a minute yeah. because um, that's a that's a beautiful thing to sort of get a little more um, clarity and detail around. So. Um, um, when I am in ventral and there's this piece of your nervous system that's called the vagal break. And the vagal break is this lovely circuit in the ventral vagal system that goes to your heart and um, regulates your heart rate. And 
if I want to be powerful and make a stand and take action from a place where I am not going to then activate everybody else's survival response, I need to do that from standing in ventral right. with my vagal break having released enough to allow sympathetic mobilizing energy into my system, yeah. but to not have gone away so that I'm now in fight flight. So with a, with a nervous system that can do that, I can be strong, I can stand my ground, I can make my case, but I do it in a way that your nervous system doesn't feel afraid of me. That's beautiful. That's but that, that is the answer that we need now. There's so, there's so much going on. And, 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 and like, I don't know if you are aware of, of it's something happening much in the States, but the Extinction Rebellion um, movement mm. around climate change, which is basically, I think, pretty, I don't know about polyvagal theory as such, but one of the things that, that, that seems to be so different about this movement is that it's, it's about you know, we have to be, it's what you just said, really. It, it's, it's doing its best to be ventral vagal. So we had protests going through uh, Canterbury, um, mm -hmm. the nearest city to us. And the thing is, it was, it was on the one hand, there was a coffin with, with the, the, you know, it was the, the biosphere was, we were going having the funeral for the biosphere because mm -hmm. of the threat of extinction. Um, and so in a sense, it was very somber and quite sort of dorsal. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the motivation behind it is people are very angry about climate change. But the thing had music and dancing and laughter and, and, and humor. Mm -hmm. So it was like this, it was this ventral vagal event going through town. That people, and people were trying to get angry with us. But there was so much smiling and, and civility, you know. That's it. So yeah. I, yeah. Do you remember? Um, like they were like really strict about you no know, getting angry because this one lady came up and started shouting at us and she was like wait till the results of Brexit are over and then start protesting and all these men were like swearing at her and like it's not about Brexit you effing <laughs> and then and then what like all the uh, like leaders were like telling them to be quiet and then like they just stopped and like no one was allowed to be angry right now. Yeah, we all had to be friendly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> friendly protest. Yeah. Friendly. So I, I, it makes me realise that the, 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 the very thought that you're saying there is has become really strongly rooted in in this particular movement. And and like people have been talking for a long time about you know activist burnout and so on. And that's yeah. because you know you are to a certain extent motivated by anger, rage really against against the. Uh, the system being so uh, life, uh, you know, denigrating, and 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 yet, unless you're, um, yeah, well, as you put it, unless you're ventral vagal yourself, you, you're not going to be an effective challenge to the system. Yeah, unless right. you. So, so you're gonna you're gonna suffer the effects of being enraged and sympathetic in your own physiology, and then you're going to. Um, activate other people to be in a survival response because you're putting cues of danger out into the world so you can't be effective. I like to call um, ventral vagal an, an unopposable force. You right. know, when there's enough ventral in, in, in me and in my surroundings and then I, it's an unopposable force. I can meet the, wow. the most angry person and if I can hold that ventral, their system begins to feel it. Wow. 
So what is some, if, um, so as a practitioner, I've, I've realized that probably the most, most important, most valuable thing that I have to offer to anyone that I work with is, isn't really what I say or the knowledge that I have. It's, it's the state of my nervous system that I can show up, show up with. So I've become very interested in the, the, the shape that my nervous system is in. I'm kind of, I'm really increasingly interested in this idea that if, if my autonomic nervous system is, is really strong, then I can just really do anything, anything that I want to do. So what, what are some really good ways of, of cultivating a strong ventral vagal state and making that more available and and more accessible? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, for, for people who really want to begin to befriend their nervous system, I would have them do that first map that's in the book, the personal mm. map, because it really is your first landing in understanding, oh, these are my three states, and here how, is how they begin to, to come alive. And the two sentences that go along with each of those, um, I am and the world is, will give you a, a, a really um, clear view of how your nervous system um, moves you through the world from each of those states. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would have people do that map, but for right now, because we're, you know, we're here with, with no maps, let me tell you about ventral vagal anchors, which I think would be a really lovely thing to, to do mm-hmm. together, um, which are, are very simply who, what, where, and when of ventral for you. So um, want, want to do these with me? Great. Yeah. Let's do it. Me? All right. <laughs> So let's start with who. So who is a person in your life who, when you're around them or you think about connecting with them, your ventral vagal system comes to life? Who is a person? I would say um, my children. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, My children, my partner, my big sister. Lovely. (laughs) You have a bunch of people. That's lovely. How about you, Miles? Who is a person who, when you're around them, your ventral vagal goes, oh, yes, now I'm here. Well, this one. Yeah, I can see that. That's really <laughs> lovely. That's lovely. How uh, about you, Ella? Mm-hmm. And it can, you know what I tell people is it can be a, a, a pet, too. It can be a dog, cat, horse, one of those mammal pets, because sometimes those are the places that we feel that as well. Um, well, maybe my guinea pig, Mimsy, because she's really affectionate. And when, um, when I've been crying, um, uh, because one of our guinea pigs, um, her babies were born dead, and I went to the house um, and saw it, and I've been crying, and then Mimsy, like, called up and licked my tears away. It was so oh, fun. how sweet. That's a lovely moment. So we all have a who, right? So mm. then we go to a, a what. What is something you do? And just this is just a little something, not a great big practice, but what is something that you do that brings you that a moment of ventral, just a micro moment of ventral. Uh, that's, uh, I think putting my face out the back door in the morning, just getting that kind of yes. waft of the, the lilacs and the roses are out oh. at the moment. And the, yeah. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I'm right there with you. That was lovely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Miles? What's a simple little what? I think, I think um, preparing a meal is, Good for me. Um, nice, nice. All right, I want to be out your back window, your back door with you, and I want Miles to be cooking for me. How about you, Ella? What's a what for you? Probably when I'm in the water, like mm. when I'm swimming. 
or even when I'm in the shower. Mm. Nice. So water's a what? That's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. So we have a who and a what. Um, what's a what's a where? Where's a place for you that you feel your ventral vagal system is welcomed? For me, it's got to be outside. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain space out there? Well, I think somewhere with trees, somewhere with big trees, mm-hmm. no people, no buildings, and maybe a river. Actually, we have there's, there's lots of really sort of mm-hmm. small, fast-moving rivers around this part of the world that, that run down through valleys, so these kind of wooded valleys with the sound of water. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And it's a place you can easily get to. And it's a place I can easily get to, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Mm. <laughs> How about you, Miles? Where's a where for you? Same sort of thing. But when, when you asked the question, I thought of a particular place. There's, a, yeah. there's um, a place in the woods near us. It's, a, it's an old track uh. that's worn down. So either side, you've got big banks, and you can see people have been going up and down their probably horses for hundreds of years or something. Oh. But it's still, you know, the track where we found that blackbird's nest the other day. Oh, there you yeah. So um, it's, it's just such a beautiful space. Lots of different kinds of trees and mossy banks. And yeah, it's cool. And your nervous system really feels nourished there. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. How about you, Ella? Um, This sounds funny, but actually my friend um, at her house, she has this like tree house where there's like this pine tree and her dad's put like planks into the pine tree. So it's like a ladder and you climb up it and then you can like sit in the pine tree and then there's a bridge like across into the tree house. And um, when I'm like in the pine tree, it's like really relaxing. I love it, I love it. That's great. So we have three very different wares and they all feel wonderful to me. Mm. So who, what, where, then it's a when. When, when are the moments that, you know, it, and, that that you feel your ventral come alive and i will i will say i don't know if i wrote this in the book or not but i'm a i'm an early morning person mm. so i'm like a 5 a.m person that's my when i love mm. 5 a.m before the world wakes up and waiting for that first bird to to sing and say good morning so my when is is an early morning but when when are your wins i think i'm probably the same with that like in, in fact some of the sweetest times i find is is Sometimes I wake in the middle of the night and can't sleep and, and I fight it. Not very often, but sometimes I think, okay, I'm actually not going to get back to sleep. Mm-hmm. I get up and just find my space. And then when I wake up properly and I've resigned myself to being awake in the middle of the night, yep. <laughs> I would find that space. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. That's lovely. I think my one is slightly different. I was thinking on what occasion rather than yes. what time. I also like early in the morning, actually. Um, I love that moment of kind of finally climbing into bed after a, a, a good busy day, not, not an excessively busy day of just like yes. that moment of like, ah, oh. yes. um, yeah. and anytime that you're kind of, you're out and you hear live music, like proper live music, not like boom, 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 but like melodic music and it's there and there's like a real person playing real music. That's always like, beautiful. yeah. Beautiful. Those are yeah. all lovely. How about you, Um, I think I'm the same as Auntie Alice. I like going to bed. And then, <laughs> like, um, often we have supper quite late and I go, oh, no, I'm not going to have that long to read before bed because um, 
when I'm at school, I often go to bed at like half six and just read until like eight. Cause oh, yeah. reading. That sounds like a lovely when reading in bed. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've identified each of uh, who, what, where, and when, and then the, the next um, step in using them would be to um, bring them alive, make sure that you connect with the who, what, where, when, and identify, ooh, here's a ventral vagal anchor, so that you begin to resource that. And then when you feel yourself slipping out of ventral, see if you can connect with, the, with either actual one of those anchors or even the memory of one of those anchors and it will mm. help your system come back into regulation mm. so it's a nice way it's a simple way it's a it's a it's, it's um you know i like to start with things that are just easy to access easy mm. To do. Mm. so that's what i would suggest and you said in the book i think and i might have i might have misunderstood it but i'm i what i think i heard you say at one point is that it's the the great thing isn't isn't to always be in ventral, but to be able to move between states, to be able to consciously move between those states. And it may what what it um, you've kind of explained one way that drawing on the parasympathetic, the sorry, the sympathetic, the, the fight or flight can be really useful. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what the dorsal vagal mm -hmm. yeah. state can bring, and, and when and how you might want to move into that state. How you might want to consciously use that. Yeah. So, so yes, we want to remember that sympathetic and dorsal both have everyday ordinary roles for us. Sympathetic is involved in heart rhythms and breath rhythms and, and, mm -hmm. and energy for our limbs and all that. And dorsal in its everyday role runs your digestion. Okay. So, and so they can only do that when ventral is overseeing the system. Okay. So then one of the ways that, that dorsal becomes a, a very sweet experience is when ventral and dorsal work together mm. so that um, dorsal brings you into the immobilization, but ventral makes it safe to do that so that you can be safely still, which I just love that experience. Okay. I think of being outside in the environment somewhere, in nature somewhere, and just coming into that place of stillness, mm. you know, and, and feeling safe to do that. That's okay. when... Dors uh, when dorsal's experience, you know, is bringing the immobilization, but okay. ventral is, is there with it saying, oh, yes, we can be quiet now, right? It's a so it's thing. not actually a black and white, and this is one of the other questions that I had, it's not like you're only ventral or you're only, it's like they do, they do coexist. Yes, they can coexist. They don't always, right? So when sympathetic takes me to a survival state, ventral's gone. And sympathetic is now running the show. Okay. Dorsal is in the background messing with our digestion, right? And then when dorsal takes over, sympathetic is, I mean, of course, it's still there in some way because we're still breathing in our heart rate, but the, the, the qualities of ventral are no longer available to us. And then we have these blends. And then we also okay. have a nuance. So if you think for a moment in the foreground right now, think about foreground, background. In the foreground, mm. I'm feeling a lot of ventral. Right. And then if I look in the background of my system, if I listen in for a minute, I can find a flavor of dorsal because that's sort of my um, habitual in the background place is some dorsal. Mm. And so mm. look into mm. your system and think, you know, what's in the foreground and then what's in the background? Because we always have that that mix going on. So it's not just a black or white. So I was walking last night and I went out quite late. So it was getting dark as uh, it was coming dark 
as I was out and I was just really enjoying it and it was a valley and it was beautiful and I, I'd not been there before and it's near my new house so it was, it was it was lovely and I was really pleased but as it got darker I started to think hmm I'm out on my own like is this completely safe of course it's safe it's fine but I could feel a kind of unease starting to kind of stare in my chest and I was watching that and I that was when that question appeared like oh can I be sort of kind of relaxed and blissed out and anxious yes. at the same time yes, yes. so okay yeah. yeah and so if we think about the vagal break again there you, you were in ventral and your vagal break was releasing a little to allow you to feel some of that unease in the background mm. yeah okay yeah yeah beautiful yeah. Oh, I'm loving looking at Miles and picture. Yeah. Having a little dorsal moment. Co regulation. There you see it. It's beautiful. And that's that's something that, that Stephen talks about, isn't it? That 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 you you can only um you can only hug someone because you've you've um felt safe. He says, you know, there are our, our quest is to feel safe, but not only to feel safe, but to feel safe in the arms of another. Yeah. That's our quest. And that's what you and Ella are you know, doing mm. right now. Feeling safe. So he, he calls that immobilization without fear, doesn't he? Because yeah. And, mm. yeah. and that's that ventral and sympathetic working together. It allows you to, to, to join in a hug and rest in each other's uh, arms. And, and it even allows us to simply be quiet sitting with someone without a need to talk. Right. All of those experiences are, are that ventral sympathetic, uh, ventral, sorry, dorsal working. Ventral dorsal, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I had a, I asked around a little bit after Miles invited me to join you today. And one of the questions that came up a couple of times from therapist friends was, and it was a question that I had as well, what, how do you work with, so it came from, one was relational, how do you, when you, you kind of get into a fight and your, your loved one gets really shut down and um, this actually happens in our relationship, it's, it's me, um, and all the things that would normally work to come back into connection are just completely unwelcome and sort of drive me further into disconnection and, and shutdown and the question came in from a different angle um someone was saying what about someone who's got a disorganized attachment or quite a lot of relational trauma at the early stages of therapy mm -hmm. which i think is is the same kind of situation where quite quite ex calling on quite extreme shutdown and defensiveness mm -hmm. how do you work with that in the, in the moment yeah so i've come up with a, a what i call the the safety danger equation and what really okay. it means is there have to be more cues of safety than danger in the moment for mm. the nervous system to be able to come into connection to do whatever it is we're trying to do and in the beginning it's really the the process of identifying concretely um, you know, sort of, I would, if you were my client and you've gone into that dorsal place, you know, first of all, I'm going to, I'm not going to say, come back. I'm not going to say, you know, when hey. you do, I'm going to say, that's not helpful, right? Because that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you're, Stop you're it. <laughs> you know, somebody, you know, the, the image of, of a turtle gone into its shell is sort mm. of a dorsal experience. And somebody um, a while back, and I use it all the time, now said, so if you wanted that turtle to come out of the shell, you wouldn't shake it, right? <laughs> and you wouldn't knock on its shell and say, come out now. So this is what we're doing with people that have gone to the dorsal. You kind of, I just say, you know, I'm right here with you. 
and mm. you know, we're, we're going to find our way back to enough ventral so that we can begin to consider what are the cues of danger right and so what the nervous system needs is to reduce cues of danger we can't resolve them for a long time but reduce them mm -hmm. and actively experience enough cues of safety so that the equation balance is a bit more cues of safety than danger and that that's the the i love that part of beginning therapy because we're always identifying oh what's the cue of danger what's the cue of safety mm -hmm. and we do it on and on and on because i can have have a wonderful relationship with a client and in a moment something happens and then I stop and go, wow, some cue of danger just came in and totally brought us out of connection. Let's bring some curiosity to what it was, right? We're always exploring that. Mm. Yeah. And this yeah. is the intriguing thing because you have no, because of the way that neuroception works, you have no way of knowing you might blink in a certain way. And that's, that's a cue of danger. That's for, and you don't, when, when you, you're working with somebody new or even someone you know really well, there's no telling from your experience of the world what those my experience just tells me that something happened and then it's yeah. my job to bring that into the, the space between us and mm. name it and help my client begin to consider what it might have been because my client probably doesn't know either right because with many people you know who have had early early relational trauma and have some sort of a insecure or disorganized attachment, you know, it's, there's some, some flavor that feels familiar and the nervous system takes them. And so it's really, you know, we're, we're explorers, which I kind of love. I love being an explorer. And, and then it's like bringing my client into this with me, let's explore together. You know, there's no shame or no blame or no judgment about what just happened. It just, it's your nervous system doing something and let's find out why. Yeah. Mm. Ella's got a, a little question. Um, oh, good. Mm -hmm. For being to like being shut down, and that shutdown actually helps you get into social engagement. Because with our guinea pigs, I know that if they're like in a hiding place or somewhere dark, they're more likely to be friendly than if they're in an open space. So, right. if they've been um if they've been able to like retreat into like um, we have these hay houses that are quite small. So it's like a dark enclosed space. If they've been able to do that, then they'll be much more friendly when they come out. Whereas mm. if they've been like out in the open, then they're going to be, they're really jumpy and stuff. Right. So rather than thinking about, dorsal vagal state if we think about what are the cues of safety for your guinea pig and for your guinea pig the cues of safety are being in a in an enclosed space where they feel cozy and the cues of danger might be being out in the open where they can't um, they don't know what from what side to to look so you know they're very wise in finding the place that brings them a, a cue of safety and they can go there and feel it and then come back out when they feel enough of those cues of safety yeah absolutely that's a that's a lovely example of of really knowing so you know with your guinea pigs that they need places to go because those are their cues of safety yeah <clears throat> and with humans we, we haven't quite gotten the same level of, of um, awareness have we humans need places to go that feel as though they're filled with cues of safety and for many humans right now we're having a hard time finding those environments mm. that feel like they have cues of safety. Mm. Mm. 
we've we've got another animal situation at home um, at, at the moment, which which I think is very interesting in relation to all this polyvagal stuff. Uh, so the the office we're sitting in had uh, the rodent. We're seeing signs that, that someone was here and that you know, yeah, they were chewing things. But I think the rodent must have got really hungry or thirsty. It was certainly. It turned out to be um, a little short-tailed field vole, which is Aww. really interesting because, of course, uh, Stephen's wife, um, Nancy Carter, so, yeah. Nancy Carter um, she, she developed a theory and uh, uh -huh. with, with, with uh, prairie voles, but I believe they're in the same genus as our little short-tailed field vole. And this is a babe who somehow wandered in here, so obviously become independent, came in here looking for food. Oh. You know, this this is this is going to ruin my credentials as as a person talking about wildness because we have actually um, caught that vole and we're keeping it in a box at home. Oh. It connects with my childhood. I used to we, we used to rescue voles from the cat and and then I'd have a pet oh. vole for a while. So that's the means oh. something to my memory, You're even though. And and the and the thing the thing got to the point where it would sit on my shoulder. And now the thing is, they're known to be easy to tame, and I feel it must be. Something to do with why why Sue found Vol such a such a good um, subject matter to explore the notion of bonding and, and oxytocin. So anyway, what we've got is a very frightened little baby vole thinking, "Where's my mum?" And of course, it's terribly mean of us to do this, but but I'm 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 really fascinated with it's a place of of for a start, it's a place of safety for all of us when we go in to handle that vole at the moment. But we're seeing it gradually, gradually get less freaked out. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is we're, we're getting it, I'm, I'm showing it, look, we get it on our hands yeah. and be still. As soon as, as soon as it stops moving, you stop moving, and it just kind of sits there and, and then it goes oh. and starts cleaning itself. And think, okay, yeah. you feel a little bit safe now because you're cleaning it. <laughs> and every day it's getting a little bit, so, so basically the, the story is that this little animal is learning that, that we are a safe space. That's what I was just going to say. And, and, and we're watching the process yes. of, it, of it. Instead of thinking we're a queue of, of threat and danger, I've, I've seen this with lots of voles before. It takes a little bit of handling for a couple of weeks. It's really good. And then they're not afraid of you at all, and they just run onto your hand, and, and, and you feed them. And When we first got it, like if you picked it up, it would just run up your arm, and then you had to get it down, and it would run up again. <laughs> always trying to escape and it it's bitten kit twice now oh. but uh but now it like if you get it it will stay still unless you move and it just sits in your hand and it started vibrating which i think is like um a relaxed or like bonding rodent because if, if we're cuddling our guinea pigs so you know and, and what you're talking about in in offering a safe welcome to your little vole is the same thing we do to humans around us is to offer a safe welcome right uh, how do mm. we how do we just come into connection in a way that feels safe to to a vole or or a, or, or a human being yeah. It's funny though because you yeah. you alluded to, to mm. silence uh, a little while ago, and of course that's the last thing you'd want to do in a, in a situation where people don't know each other, unfortunately. But with this thing where we just we go absolutely still and just go, okay, now you've got space. 
sadly we can't do that with other humans you have to fill the space with now it's 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 harder certainly with other humans although um you know if we if we sat for a moment together in just you know sharing our ventral energies um there, there's a limit to each person's nervous system's ability to tolerate silence because silence is often um neuroceptive is acute danger so we're, we're playing around with that 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 line there whereas for your vol stillness is apparently acute safety yeah yeah it seems to be love it <laughs> love it oh what a lovely conversation with you guys yeah thanks so much dad mm -hmm. lovely to show up and any, any last thoughts i have a question of the moment with so much being on on video at the moment and so much connection happening over screens yeah how do you make sure that you're conveying safety when you get on video and get on a video call to teach or to yeah yeah you know i i i i name it and i ask and i um you know, talk each time to, to my client or, or who I'm doing consultation with, or when I'm teaching, I'll put it out there in the beginning. Just, you know, let's just take a moment and just want to see if you can feel my regulation because it's about my regulation, right? If I'm regulated, I can offer that regulating energy to, to mm. the world, you know, to mm. other people, whether they're on a screen or not to come into, mm. come into connection. So for me, it, it's this explicit conversation that, that, you know we're having and then you know as as we move through a a, a session it's it's that tracking and asking you know mm. and it does it still because even though you know even though we're not together we we can still feel that this mm. moment of oh something just happened there right mm. you know and on screens it's hard because there's a bit of delay and voice and there's so one of the things that i find it fascinating though is what this screen is is um sort of demanding we do is to slow down a bit to give mm. time between talking and and listening because of the delay that's built in is yeah. fascinating mm. yeah that's a really good point yeah mm. you can't just dive in with the first thought that comes in fact miles and i were both doing it at the beginning of the call we were like T -t 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 -t. and you you can't do that you have to let things unfold watch for a pause take yeah it's really true well, it's true because because the the thing is, um, I think the the way this technology works is that two people actually can't speak at the same time. So, yeah, so inter interrupting is never a good thing. But, but but you you kind of sort of get your knuckles wrapped for doing it in this context because it's really disruptive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like a virtual talking stick. You know the you know the kind of um, traditional idea of you pass the stick around. And I guess there's something in that just about the unfamiliarity of it. I remember, I remember when video was just becoming a thing and to just see somebody on video that you've been getting emails from, suddenly there's a video from them was mind blowing. And the thought of recording yourself on video seemed so brave. And then, then being able to see someone on a live video was, was just like the end of the world. Um, and so there's a kind of, there's, I think there's a nervous system shock with the newness of it and the strangeness of it. And I don't think it's all that different from how indigenous people used to respond to having their photos taken. Like, exactly. I think there's, there's some kind of response that we have to that. And you were just, just talking about settling in. 
bit by bit people are kind of discovering that it's not horrendous to 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 talk on video and to be seen and and so so those I think I think it's a really good point it's just becoming more familiar now isn't it because unfamiliar is often a cue of danger to, to, to yeah. people, especially to clients. Unfamiliar was never a good thing in, in their history. So unpredictable, unfamiliar, all of that are cues of danger. So when we begin to, they become less unfamiliar, we, we do them more and we build in, what are we going to do if, if our internet stops? You know, we, we talk about those things beforehand so that we've pre-planned. It makes it all easier. So that's a really nice way. That's a really nice kind of full circle, actually, of, of sort of this question of like, what do we do about this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is we just let our nervous system get used to it and settle and, 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 and get comfortable. And so it's, it's not actually how do we do connecting online? How do we do? It's just it's the same. It's the same routine of, of what makes us feel safe. Yeah. what's okay how, how do we get comfortable we, we, we didn't we didn't lose any of our skills just because we're not sitting in an office together right yeah. it, it's just that we have to be more explicit in what we're doing and invite our clients yeah. to be more co-creative with us so I, I think it's actually in some ways don't want it to go on forever but at the moment yeah. there's there's an opportunity here to to learn yeah. and, and something yeah. important so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think there's another aspect to it like I mean I'm generally pretty wary of of how technology can take things away from us in terms of presence Mm -hmm. connectivity and 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 so on but we had um so I I belong to a group called the the association of foragers mostly in the UK but there's a few from from the states and elsewhere but we we had to um put our heads together about a project we're working on Mm -hmm. um during the lockdown and I ended up having um I think there was 16 people on my screen. Mm-hmm. First time I'd done a Zoom meeting with, with um, you know, I've, I've only ever done a Skype thing with, I think, three people once. And suddenly there were 16 people, and there they were all on my screen. I could see everybody's face. And yeah. I, I felt like a child in a sweet shop. All these lovely people that I normally have to drive an extraordinarily long way to get to see. And thinking about it, you know, there is a dysregulating thing, at least I find this, to traveling. You get there, you're exhausted, A. Mm-hmm. And then B, you're in this space that's, that's, that's not any of your space. Actually, last time I saw this lot, it was one of their spaces. It was a chap called Dan in Wales. We're in his house. But everyone else is in a strange place. Yeah. My body's yeah. still feeling funny because of this long journey. Yeah. All this unfamiliarity and lack of cues of safety. Actually, the dysregulating factors of, of the technology I realized were massively less. I'm in my own space, in my office, familiar place. And now I've got all these lovely people. I can just see their faces on the, on, on the screen. I don't know. Actually, I'm the opposite. I prefer it. And I really like arriving after a long journey and like looking around okay. and stuff. And then like relaxing. And I don't really like seeing people on screen because I don't find it as like... Mm. That's, yeah. Well, I think, I think we've learned something there that, you, that, that your body is not dysregulated by traveling mine, mine definitely is but that's sweet mm-hmm. feel, yeah social so i will i will say for me um i travel all over the world now every day and i love it because <laughs> 
do it right from here. Like I'm in the UK now mm. and later today I'm going to Ireland and it's just lovely. The, the ways that I can travel the world without having to pack my suitcase and get on an airplane and do all that. So in yeah. some ways I'm, I'm kind of loving this. Yeah. It feels very, it feels like we're globally connected in a way that we might not mm. have been before this. Mm. And I think, that, I think there's great, um, there's something wonderful there that we, we need to hold on to. So, yeah. The, the, the whole kind of connection and relational thing with nervous systems um, towards, you know, we looked at it earlier, our own, our own body and other people and then, and then places. But I think there's something that perhaps is going to come stronger with people's sense of how they actually form an emotional bond with the landscape where they actually live and and the opportunity we've got right now is because we're not supposed to be going somewhere else you know we're supposed to be staying here and i think that's that's yeah. probably people are probably discovering that the fact of not moving around so much does give this kind of ventral vagal thing mm. of, of just you just settle down here Yes, it's either it's either going to bring that, which is you know what we hope for for lots of people, or it's going to take us into a place where we recognize that where we are is not home for us. Yeah, that's true. That we're misplaced. We're we're in a place that doesn't feel safe and welcoming. So that there's you know a lot of learning that's that's going on for people right now. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Deb. Mm, it was lovely to meet the yeah. three of you, and uh, mm. I love to hear the work you're doing and uh, let's stay in touch How about that fantastic yeah enjoy to talk to you so have a great rest of your day everybody okay thank you for joining us for this week's worldwide podcast and as always uh there's links to things mentioned in the podcast on the show notes which you can find at forager.org.uk forward slash podcast and we'll put some stuff up there about my sister Alice's work and also some bits and bobs about Deb. So, yeah, it just remains to talk a little bit about what you could be foraging, gathering and eating just now. It's elderflower season, and every year I find more things to do with elderflowers. This this week we've had some fun because uh, we're working on the zine, which which uh, should be out next week if, um, if you are – particularly keen to distribute some copies for us, uh, do let me know. Um, the idea is to to get this. It's going to be called Eat Wild. And uh, the idea is to get it in the hands of people that are interested in foraging or, or, or you think would be interested in foraging if given a little bit of help. So it's sort of entry-level stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's a free zine. Um, so the idea is to get it in the hands of people that, that wouldn't be able to pay for it uh, if it wasn't free. But perhaps there might be a way to get it available at a point of sale for people who can't afford to pay. We, we, we're going to be exploring that. But anyway, we've been doing recipes for that. And one of the things that was suggested was that we uh, look at how to help people to get wild food in their diet when they don't even have, have much interest in cooking. Uh, so we've made suggestions about chopping it into baked beans for baked beans on toast. And also uh, Robin Harford said we, we've got to do pot noodle. Lots of people are really keen on pot noodle. And if you just chop some wild plants and put it in your pot noodle, well, that's going to be a much better pot noodle. So I have I've done, <laughs> gone out and bought some pot noodle, and we tried adding uh, plantain and elderflower. 
to the pot noodle. And I have to say it really worked. Adds a good bit of texture and flavor, especially to the chicken and mushroom one. Um, and the reason I did that was because I've been working on a soup that would also be incredibly basic. And it, I called it wild chicken soup. It's basically a stock cube, some chopped potatoes. You, you cook the potatoes in, in, the, in the stock, dissolved in a liter of water. And then about five minutes from the end, you add a whole load of elderflowers. Uh, and then you chop some plantain leaves and pour the soup on top of that. And that's your wild chicken soup. And it did seem to really, uh, really, I, th I thought it would work because chicken and elderflower is a really good flavor combination. But uh, it, it worked better than I thought it would. So that's got me inspired to just add elderflower to more things, really. Um, I've been just putting it in salads. Oh, I guess that's nothing new. But um, basically, you know, you can, you can put elderflower in with, with peas or, or cabbage. You know, just stir some butter or oil in there and add some elderflower. And you're basically using it as a flavoring. You can put it in a, in a, in a bag with potatoes. It will put the flavor inside the potatoes. Um, also, really good. Again, with chicken, the chicken gravy. And by the way, if you want to do a real chefy soup, you can make your own stock. But it really does work with that crumbled um, stock cube. And if you're if you're veggie or vegan, of course, you can use just vegetable stock. Uh, you'll miss out on that magic chicken synergy there, but it's 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 still a really good good option. And you know, the large leaves of plantain are just great at the moment they're crunchy i had some toast with a with a nice goat's cheese the other day and i just felt it was missing something and i just put some long plantain leaves on top of that toast um on top of the cheese and it was just great the texture and the flavor it just really worked so i'm not sure if i've described plantain before but anyway i'll do it again so ribbot plantain is a long thin leaf and it's really easy to identify because it has parallel veins most leaves have one long vein up the middle and then veins like branches going out to the edges plantains they don't they just have long veins going from the top to the bottom it makes them easy to recognize and then they have these fun little flower heads at the moment and actually you can make a soup with that as well so because plantain tastes like mushrooms and especially the flower heads you could take those flower heads and just blitz them in again i'd recommend chicken stock blitz them in chicken stock and infuse that for 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 maybe a minute or so and strain it out for some reason it gets bitter if you leave it for longer than that and then you can add um butter and cream and whatever a luxurious thing again you can go uh plant-based with this and, and not use the animal fats or the, or the chicken stock just veg stock but it's just occurred to me now that i should redo that recipe um and add uh elderflowers makes me want to go back to that recipe and redo it for the zine i think it's too late <laughs> never mind anyway so um that would be a wild chicken and mushroom soup so you can make two soups or blend them together as i've just suggested so there's a couple of thoughts elderflowers everywhere plantains everywhere should be really easy for for for, for anyone to get out there and find those two plants somewhere close to where you live okay so thanks again for listening to this week's worldwide podcast Keep it safe and social.
things that I do And I don't want to see, I don't want to see Shut down and wake, not able to speak Let's all get back into health, growth, restoration and thriving Keep it safe and social I wanna be a cue I wanna be a cue Of safety to you Of safety to you Your vocal prosody Was like a song to me Like safe songs in a tune Makes a safe sound and a tune Let's make our presence gentle Let's witness and not be so judgmental Let's keep it safe and social Let's make our presence gentle Let's witness and not be so judgmental Keep it safe and social.